Hello. My name's BJ, and I'm a staff pastor here. Um, <laughs> this morning, we're going we're gonna to read before, uh, before Mike comes up and share. We're going to read from Matthew 10. So Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Well, I can't match BJ's intro. So, <laughs> we do that. How often do we do that to each other, BJ? About five times a week. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> oh, boy. You're awesome, dude. Have I told you lately that I love you? I'll sing it to you later this week. Encourage you guys, get out your Bibles, and let's turn to Mark chapter 3 this morning. And as you turn to Mark chapter 3, and we begin our study in God's Word, I want to speak to something as we begin to kind of um, get our appetites ready for what Jesus is going to do in our text this morning. I want to remind you guys that something that we look forward to in our lives oftentimes, oftentimes we fill our entertainment with things like these, we're always looking for an inspirational story. Uh, inspirational stories... Um, are often depictions of people's lives that we're just like, wow, that's so inspiring, that's so encouraging, that makes me want to be a, a better, stronger person, that makes me want to try harder. You know, if I'm watching Rocky, it makes me want to hit the gym. Um, how can you not watch Rocky and not, like, and, and not feel like the pressing need to go to the gym, right, that very second? If, how many of you guys have not seen Rocky? I'm sorry. <gasps> <laughs> just trying to understand who I'm talking to. Inspiration, that's right, it's movie afternoon, all five Rocky movies this afternoon. If we can get to the sixth, then, you know, we're good and cooked. Anyway, inspirational stories. They're never stories where the main character has the perfect home, the perfect job, the perfect friends, and certainly not the perfect family. Have you ever noticed that? Inspirational stories are often difficult to watch because there's so much adversity in them. In fact, some of our favorite inspirational stories are the opposite of optimal. The main character will have few or none of these things. A good family, a good job, a good school, a good life in general. And the inspiration comes when the characters we care about rise above the challenges that face them and achieve victory in whatever situation that they find themselves facing. They find a way to rise above it, right? And since film or stories in so many ways are secular, they'll find their way to that conclusion through various means. I think we can understand this from stories, though. Not only does inspiration come through difficulty, God has shown his people that opposition is not only possible, it is inevitable. Opposition is inevitable in our lives. We are going to face it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And, and for some of us, it's a matter of when will it ever stop, right? 
Paul reminds Timothy of this in his second letter, 2 Timothy 3.12. He says this, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There should be a slide for that one. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You guys, if we're walking with Jesus, it's not a matter of if we're, we're, we are persecuted. I can do it. If we are persecuted, but when? Now, Peter makes it clear that we must be certain that we're not suffering in this life because of our own sin. And some people will look at it and be like, oh, I'm suffering so much. And you're like, well, you're literally standing in a fire, right? I just don't understand why it's so hot. It's like, well, get out of the fire. You guys, Peter makes it clear that we have to be certain that it's not of our own doing and that examination of our own heart and our actions is essential to being sure that you and I are not the cause of our suffering. He writes about it in his letter, 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12. He says, dear friends, it's so encouraging, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, please underline this in your Bible, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. I'm sorry, can we stop at verse 14 real quick? If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Good job, Christian. You're getting ridiculed. He continues, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Please, no one in this room suffer as a murderer. A thief, an evildoer, or a meddler, all of those things. He says, don't suffer for that. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. With that as our perspective, I want to reread what BJ read this morning from Matthew chapter 10. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? If they were willing to say that to Jesus, which is in our text this morning, I'll, I'll give you a little, a little cheat. If they were willing to say that to Jesus, then why wouldn't they speak it of us? Why wouldn't they say it of the ones who live in his house? I don't know if the disciples expected the source of these types of attacks to be what it was when Jesus called them to himself last week as we were talking about Jesus summoning his disciples to himself and he calls the twelve. And it says that he called them to be with him, to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. I don't know if Jesus' disciples really expected at that time where the source of the opposition would come from, where it would come from and how it would affect them. The Jewish mindset at this time was to see Rome as the enemy, probably Herod, maybe even non-Jewish people, the Gentile nations around them as being the problem. I wonder if they really understood where the attack was going to come from, and that attack comes sometimes from the least likely of directions. But within this third chapter of Mark, it's revealed who's resisting the work that Jesus is doing in the world. We were told in Mark 3 to 19, it's right in front of you from last week's text, that the betrayer, the one who would betray him to be crucified, was not an outsider. Who was it? 
It was Judas. You could say it. It was who? And Judas was what? One of the twelve. So prior to this study this morning, from last week's study, Jesus would experience persecution from within his close friend group, from within the group of guys who were the ones there to do the ministry with him, from a friend. And in this morning's text, we'll realize that Jesus' family is going to set out to oppose the work that he's doing. And further along in the text, we're going to see that the scribes or the religious leaders are going to set out to oppose what Jesus is doing. Do you really think that the enemy is not going to attack you from every possible direction to stop you from doing what God has put you here to do? If they did it for Jesus, why would they not do it to us? Why would we not experience the same things? And in chapter 3 of Mark, we're shown where the sources of attack upon Jesus come from. Friends, family, and church. Does that mean that we forsake them all? That's it. That's why I got my 40 acres. My land will never betray me. Yes, it will. It so will. Have you seen what the windstorms have done to our area the last few years? The land is betraying us people. It's rotting. It's corrupt. Does that mean that we forsake all these people groups? I can't have any friends. I shouldn't hang out with my family. I'm not going to be around the church. How many people talk to you and say, yeah, I used to go to church, but I don't go anymore. Why? Because I had a bad experience. I got hurt. Or the the one that I hear the most from people in the secular world. Christians are all just a bunch of hypocrites. Right? Yes, the enemy is going to seek to use people in all of these areas of our lives. How do we handle that? It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. It's going to happen. And I want to say it the way that Paul would say it. Should we forsake the church, our families, our friends? Certainly not. God forbid. By design, he's placed us here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he has put us here for just such a season as this. We share that with Esther. We share that with Queen Esther. She was placed at just the right time in the lives of her people to preserve them. Mordecai was wise. You guys, if we're walking with him humbly, we can be conformed into his image within the tension. Within the tension. And when we expect, not being jaded like, well, everyone's just going to be mean to me, because we're not Christian Eeyores, okay? You know, if, if anyone here is turning into Droopy the dog, we need to knock it off. Enough of that, okay? That sounds pretty good through the system. But you guys, if, if we're here to be conformed into the image of Christ, and we recognize if they did this to Jesus, they're going to do it to me. That has nothing to do with his love and his empowering of my life. It's to be expected. Then I can live in a way that honors him in the midst of the tension, in the midst of opposition. And when we come to this understanding that there is an inevitable reality of opposition in our lives, It means you cry out to the Lord for grace first thing in the morning. It means that you're coming to Jesus saying, I need you for today. And you know what's going to happen tomorrow? I'm going to need you for tomorrow. And so every day I'm coming to you saying, strengthen me and allow me to honor you because it's going to be tough. But you can have joy in the midst of it. And we're going to see Jesus face these challenges in our text this morning. 
So this morning, we'll look at the two latter examples I gave. We're going to talk about the challenge or the opposition to Jesus' ministry by his family and the opposition that the scribes brought to it. So let's read our text in its entirety, and then we'll go through it and look at it a little more closely. Beginning in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, we read this. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and he told them, look, and they told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Take note of the bookends of the chapter together. Beginning of, or the beginning of this section, not the chapter, but the bookends of this section, beginning in verse 20, and then looking towards the end of it as well. You'll notice this, that at the beginning of this section, Jesus' family sets out to stop him, and at the end of this section, which wraps up the chapter, they're there trying to stop him, trying to stop what he's doing. Now, in verses 20 through 21, in response to the crowds, his family sets out, we could probably understand that to be from Nazareth, presumably to restrain, it says, presumably from Nazareth, but to come and to restrain Jesus, and their reasoning is that he's out of his mind. That he's not clear in the head as to what he's doing. Now what's interesting is that word restrain is the same word that's used throughout the Gospels for arrest. So they weren't just seeking to have a conversation with him and try to understand what he's doing. Their intent is to stop him. It's the same word that would be used for arrest. The arrest of John the Baptist, same word. The arrest of Jesus in the garden, same word. And I don't believe the fam showed up with shackles. I don't think that's like, that's it. We're gonna have to lock him up and drag him back. You know, that's not what they're there to do. They're trying to restrain him from himself because they believe he's out of his mind. God, you're going crazy. Let us help you. Now you're like, well, that's not really what it says. Exactly, because they don't recognize who he is. They don't recognize who Jesus truly is because if they truly understood who Jesus is, they wouldn't be out to restrain him, would they? You wouldn't be out to stop God if you truly believe who he is and what his character is. But how often am I trying to stop God from doing something in my life instead of saying, do whatever you want, I don't care how it affects me. That's a scary prayer to pray, isn't it? Are you comfortable praying it? Lord, I don't care what happens to me. Just do whatever you want. That's scary. But that's what he wants our faith to grow to be. 
Lord, I trust you in whatever you choose to do. They misunderstand who Jesus is, even his own family. And as the two accounts of Jesus' interaction with this family reveal, and this was through crowds, by the way. They don't directly talk to each other. They're like passing messages, if you will. These accounts reveal that his family was attempting to do what the scribes wanted to do, restrain him. Oh, they may not have been malicious about it. It certainly doesn't seem to be that way. They don't seem to be acting in a way that's against or, or you know, wanting to harm Jesus in any way. If anything, if we look at the text and give them the benefit of the doubt, they're trying to think about what's best for Jesus, just like his disciples were. When Jesus is like, we're going to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, and they're like, what? They're going to kill you. And he's like, we're going. But you don't. We are going. It's like when your parents look at you and say, we're going. You have no choice in the matter. We're going. You guys... We misunderstand what the Lord's doing so often. May we never be people who are trying to restrain the work of the Lord, who are trying to arrest the work of Jesus because what he's doing is too radical for us. Lord, do whatever you want in this place. So long as it's your will, I'm 100% in. That's where we ought to be. I'm 100% in with whatever you're doing. In fact, how can I be a part of it? You guys, the enemy will use anyone he can to stop the work of God from being done in this world. Think about this. How many attempts has the enemy made to stop or to tear down or to prevent the work of Jesus thus far? He tempted him in the wilderness, remember? Trying to get Jesus to compromise. Demons are walking into synagogues. Trying to thwart the work of Jesus. What does he do? He silences them. Satan was powerless. His demons are powerless. And when his demonic minions had, pa- had no power over Jesus, what did Satan turn to? Who would Satan possess? Judas. He turned to a friend. He turned to the family. He got the religious leaders involved. Church, if Satan can't win with demonic power, he'll use people. He'll use others. That doesn't turn us against those people. That's an awareness for us. The enemy will stop at nothing to try and hinder the work of the Lord through his church. Jesus knows and teaches that the enemy will seek to squeeze in between us to destroy us. He dealt with it firsthand by the attempts of the enemy himself through friends, family, and the religious leaders. And all of these things, get this, this is how slimy the enemy is. He's trying to use the church to tear itself apart. Is he succeeding in this country? Way more than he should be. How many believers, how many brothers and sisters in Christ that we view life differently from do we slander? Do we tear apart? Do we look at and say, I have a different theology, but they, they hold to the same doctrines that we do, but theologically they're differently aligned. It's not a salvation issue. It's an interpretation issue. And yet we will slander them and talk about them as if they don't know anything, that no one should listen to them. Now, I understand standing up for core doctrine, but we need to stop fighting about opinion. We, can, we need to stop fighting about things that are not hills to die on. Church, let us not die on every hill. There are doctrines that we will die for. Salvation by Jesus. 
what true atonement is. There are core doctrines that we stand to, that we hold to, but let us stop fighting over the things that do not matter. We can have those discussions, and I have to say this. It's hard to say that out loud because immediately people look at you and go, well, hold on a second now. What's important to you? It may not be what's important to me. You know what? Let's make Jesus the most important thing, obeying his word the most important thing, and let the chips fall where they fall. Can we do that? Because I'm okay with philosophy of ministry being different in other churches. I'm okay with that. You know we gather with the other three churches. They don't do things the way I would do it. But not one of you can convince me in any way, shape, or form that Jared, Joel, or Zach do not love Jesus and will be celebrating and part of that chorus that's singing in heaven together with us. You guys, we have to start pushing for unity. Let's have the discussions. Let's be kind. Let's be loving towards each other. And you guys, most of you know me pretty well. You know I'm taking everything to Scripture. You know I'm not going to compromise on things. But let me say this. We have for too long been too said or slandering people we don't agree with. Enough. Earlier, as I think it was Billy that was praying, you know what, if social media is a source of argument, get rid of it. If it's causing disunity amongst believers, drop it. It's not worth it. Start loving each other. You guys, we are called to this. We are called to press into a closer relationship with one another. And I have no problem calling heresy, heresy. Boy, we need to be careful about calling our brothers and sisters who differ in opinion not saved. Jesus uses his family's desire to restrain him as a teaching opportunity in verses 31 through 35. We'll get to the middle section in a bit, but let's kind of deal with this family issue that he's having, having on the bookends. They set out to stop him. It says in verses 20 through 21, well, they arrive in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus wasn't being rude to his family. He was not being rude to his family. Even if their motives were right, their purpose was wrong. And Jesus says his family is made up of those who do the will of God. He says, do you know who my family is? These people. These people are my family. Our Lord's half-brothers weren't believers at this point. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. We're told his brothers don't even believe in him. Jesus felt closer to the believing tax collectors and the sinners than he did to James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. His brothers and his family, his half-brothers. Our Lord was not suggesting that believers ignore or abandon their families in order to serve God. But only this, church, that they put God's will above everything else in life, just as he did. This isn't the abandonment of your family. This is how you serve your family, by representing the heart of Jesus. The inevitable reality of opposition presents itself through the desire to restrain within Jesus' family right here on the bookends of what we looked at. And within the middle of our section, the challenge is issued by the scribes. And I'll try to move through this quickly, but it's just so good. Verse 22 says this, the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, and we already know, we already know how they stand against Jesus. 
The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem say something heinous. He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. And I'll read these again for us. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Mark introduces the parables of Jesus for the first time following an accusation of the scribes that Jesus is Satan-possessed. That he is Satan-possessed. I'm sorry, it's just the accusation is that Jesus is Satan-possessed and their basis for this accusation is that he is, because of that possession by Satan, driving out his own minions because he's their master. What? (laughs) And I think Jesus deals with the what of that in the beginning of his parabolic answer, but it's like, that doesn't even make sense. That's nonsensical. And Jesus destroys the the, the argument, but interestingly enough, before he gives his parables, we need to remember what Beelzebul, or we would know Beelzebub from the Old Testament, actually means. It means Lord of the Flies. Or Lord of the Manure Pile. That's nice. It stems back to ancient Philistine gods, but in its essence, it means master of the house. It means master of the house. Don't sing the song. Emily smiled at me. I thought she was going to burst out here. Let's remember, you guys, this part of of, of the the interpretation of Beelzebul when Jesus responds, because it ties together in his parable. But before we look at the parables Jesus is going to use here, it's important that we note this about parabolic stories. A parable is a story or a figure that's placed alongside a teaching to help understand its meaning. When Jesus talks in parables, that's the tool that a parable is. It's much more than an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's certainly not an illustration such as a preacher would use in a sermon. A true parable gets the listener deeply involved and compels that listener to make a personal decision about God's truth and thereby about their own lives. They are meant for introspection. Parables are meant for introspection. Wearsby said it this way, I love this. A parable begins innocently as a picture that arrests our attention. There's a slide for this, Trevor. That arrests our attention and arouses our interest. But as we study the picture, it becomes a mirror in which we suddenly see ourselves. The crowd did not judge the parables. The parables judged the crowd. Think about this. When you're reading a parable, you're looking at a mirror. And the reason I say that these are for introspection is because if you're reading the parables of Jesus and immediately thinking of how they apply to someone else, you've missed the point of the parable. The parable is for introspection. It's to look at yourself in the mirror. You guys, it's worth noting that Jesus explained the kingdom not by giving a lecture on theology, but by painting pictures that captured the attention of people and forced them to use their imaginations and think. He engaged their minds. He engaged their imagination. He drew them in with his parables. 
Now look at the parable he speaks. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. That's a pretty clear picture, even structurally. Even if you think about it physically and structurally, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the, the building of a house when you're working on when you're framing a house, if your framing isn't right and it's working against itself, that house is coming down. It's just a matter of which direction, right? If you don't frame it right, it's not going to stay up. But think about it this way as well. If you think about the spiritual picture as he involves Satan and his, and his minions, if the demons possessed people according to the will of their master, then why would he undo his own work? Why would he undo something that he had fought for? Simple answer is he wouldn't. So what's the natural conclusion? Jesus paints two beautiful parabolic pictures. The first is basic knowledge. Internal divisions do not beget a stronger house. Now here's the thing. Disagreement is normal. Discussion is expected. But division destroys the home. You want to tear a house down, divide it. Discussion won't do that. Disagreement doesn't even have to do that. Division will. Disagreement that moves on to division is where the house falls apart. It's not disagreement. So the first is basic knowledge. Internal divisions do not beget a stronger house, so why would the enemy do that? Second, the second parable is super profound. To plunder a house, the strong man must be bound first. You ever read that and be like, who's the strong man? It's interesting. Makes me all the things that I think about the things that are in the Bible, right? Like, well, who's the strong man? But it's very basic. It's very simple, you guys. Remember they accused Jesus of being Beelzebul, the master of the house. Right? And Jesus says, you know, in order to plunder the house, you have to cast or tie up the strong man first. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus says, no, I've bound the strong man. I'm stronger than the strong man, and I'm plundering his kingdom. Are you afraid of the work of the enemy in this world? Does it cause you fear to think about what the enemy is accomplishing in this world? You do not have to be afraid. Because Jesus says, I tied up the strong man. He says, I walked into the house and I asserted my will upon him. He's like, don't call me Satan. I'm the one that bound him. I'm the one that's going to defeat him. Jesus declares that the strength of Satan has been tied up by the Son of Man. And he has just given his disciples in Mark 3.15 the authority to cast those demons out as well. How much fear should there be in our hearts, even in the realm of the spiritual? None if we're with Jesus. He's the one who binds the strong man. That's why we can say it with a lot of energy and I'm purposefully controlling myself right, right now. But that's why Jesus so powerfully spoke to us when he says to Peter in Caesarea Philippi, you know, on this rock I'm going to build my church and what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's going to build what? What's he building? Is the church a building or a people? It's a people. 
you tear this building down, the church still exists. Please don't. I love this building. <laughs> First Baptist is like, mm-mm, I don't, I'm not going to let it happen. I'll, I'll, I'll be like that guy laying in front of the tractor. I'll lay in the building. You can't knock it down if I'm laying here. You guys, the church is a people. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my people and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. We do not have to fear the powers of darkness because his perfect love through his sacrifice on the cross has cast out fear. That is the biblical truth. Jesus has already bound Satan. Satan may be wandering. They were like, then how is he wandering around? He's awaiting sentencing, people. He is on a limited time engagement. His time is going to end because his kingdom will come and his will will be done here on this earth. So fear no darkness, church. The strong man is bound. Jesus, our king, is alive and well, and his spirit is in us. Stand against the forces of darkness. And when you have interactions where the enemy is pressing against you, resist the devil, and he will do what? He will flee. That's a promise. Jesus follows this parable, church, with a warning. He says, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. He's speaking to the scribes, remember this. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But he's guilty of an eternal sin. And it, Mark adds this because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Jesus is warning the Jewish religious leaders at the end of these parables that they were in danger of committing an eternal and unforgivable sin. He's firing a warning shot across their bow. The rejection of the Holy Spirit, which is God's gift to all who believe in the Son of Man. He says, don't commit that sin. That one's not forgivable. That's a road with a determined destination. They're doing exactly what Stephen reveals in Acts 7.51. Remember in his sermon where he cries out to the Sanhedrin, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. What? before The boldness of Stephen. I love it. This is the same council that put Jesus to death. And he stands up to, up to them and he says, now I have something I need to share with you and, and I need you to hear this from me, okay? I don't mean to offend you. But you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. For a Jew, they were like, oh, how dare you? You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are always and constantly pressing against the work of God in your life. And Jesus says, don't do it. It's unpardonable. There's no going back from that. And Stephen concludes his statement, as your ancestors did, you do also. For more on that, read the Old Testament. The whole thing. <laughs> Seriously. You guys, don't. Here, here's what I don't want you to hear. This is a firm warning. This is a scary thing. If you're like, I don't ever want to commit the unpardonable sin. Could I have done it? Listen, if you're asking the question, you haven't done it yet. If you're like, I don't know if I committed the unpardonable sin. I said some really dumb things when I was drunk that one time. That's not what this is about. Church, rejection of the Holy Spirit is rejection of salvation. It's the rejection of Jesus' atonement for your sin. That's what it is. That's what the scribes are on the verge of doing here. Do not lose hope for the people in your life that are resisting the Lord. Don't lose hope for them. 
When you read a verse like this, don't project that into people's lives around you and go, I think they've committed it. I think they're done. That's not true. You guys, even if the unrepentant sinner is hardening their heart to the point that they seem to be insensitive to the pleadings of God, as long as there is life, as long as there is breath in their lungs, there is hope. My grandmother is a testimony to that because the Lord met her in a coma. The Lord met her when she was as good as dead. And at 80-something years old, she woke up and she received Jesus as her Lord and Savior before she went into glory to see him. And my classroom full of boys, when I was teaching boys' Bible at North Idaho Christian School, we prayed for her. We prayed for her and we prayed for her and the Lord did a work. You guys, there is always hope. Think in your mind of the person that you have the least amount of hope for. There is hope for them if there is breath in their lungs. Don't give up. This is why we must never despair of any sinner that still has breath. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 4 says this. First then, first of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for, it's on the screen, can you see it? Everyone, that's a lot. Everyone is everyone. For kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's right, you have to pray for the politicians you don't like. He says, this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Church, if we want to see people get saved, we need to get on our knees. We need to be praying and crying out for them. How many of us have testimonies where through prayer, the Lord did a powerful work and saved this person who we thought was never, ever going to receive him, who was so cold and so jaded and so angry? You guys, if he can save me, he can save you. He can save anyone. Having saved us, it really is the perfect opportunity as we think about that. And I really hope that hits with some sobriety. Jesus, no matter what, you're, what situation you're in right now, church, Christian, hear me. He saved you from your sin, even the sins you're trying to live in right now even the sins that you're failing at giving up. He saved you from the things that you might be choosing over him. Because while we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that's when Christ died for us. It wasn't because we finally hit that mode of worthiness. Jesus says, listen, I love you so much. I'm going to die for you. He died for us before we were even born. He loves you even though you could be sinning in your heart right now. And he loves you despite the fact that you'll sin tomorrow. And he wants you with him. And when he gave us what we get to share together this morning, communion, it was a reminder of his love. It was a demonstration. It was a physical, tangible thing to take to remember that he would give his body up to be broken and that he would allow them to beat him and cause him to bleed and to crucify him and to kill him for us. Communion's a powerful thing. It's about remembrance and renewal. And Jesus spoke these words in the upper room with his disciples before he was betrayed. And he said this, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you. 
No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We read about that last week. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. As we take communion this morning, and there's a crew that will come up and, and distribute the elements, and we'll take it together, so hold on to them. As we take communion this morning together, let me ask you this. Do you feel loving towards everyone in your life? Do you feel like your love for others is like Jesus? Because he so loved, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Eternal life. You guys, when we're taking communion, we are recognizing the overwhelming love of Jesus for us. And when we take communion, we're asking that that overwhelming love of Christ for us would fill us so that we can love one another. For that is exactly what Jesus taught his disciples there at the table when he instituted communion. He taught them to love one another. And he said, I'm going to show you how. Just give me a sec. Not only did he give them communion, from that moment he left that room, he was on the path to the cross. He was going to prove it to them and show them so demonstratively how to lay their life down for each other. This morning, let's remember Jesus' great love that compelled him to lay down his life for us, his friends. Let's ask him as we take communion this morning that he would fill us with his love for each other. That's why I pushed so hard at unity this morning because we need to be loving towards each other. Love is not rude. Love is not harsh. Love is gentle. Love is kind. And love seeks for what's best for others. Lord, as we come before you, as we begin to um, prepare ourselves to receive communion this morning, this family meal, your body and your blood, Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for this, this thought I believe you put on my heart this morning in prayer, an examination for every person in this room, every person that can hear my voice, that can hear what's being said right now, let us examine in our hearts and in our minds the sin that we value more than the blood of Jesus. Let us evaluate the sin Examine the sin in our hearts that we value more than the blood of Jesus. Lord, let that conviction flow in us. Let your heart of restoration and healing flow in us. That isn't a condemnation. That statement is an invitation. Jesus, of you saying, confess your sins to me. Reminding us that you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That not one person in this room has sinned themselves out of the kingdom. 
Not one person in this room has done something so heinous that they cannot be forgiven because of the power, Jesus, of your precious blood. Remind us this morning, rattle us to our core, Jesus, that there is not one person in this room that cannot be forgiven through confession and repentance. Lord, if there is an an unbelieving heart in this room, I pray that they would relinquish that, that they would receive you as Lord, that we would take this seriously. Jesus, that as we take communion together this morning, that this would be, Lord, refreshing, that this would be joy-giving. And I do ask, Lord, that as we prepare ourselves to take and as we sing these words of this song, that this would bring, bring us great comfort and joy to know, Lord, that you came here and died according to the will of the Father. God, that you are in control. You always have been, and you always will be.